Um, I know that doesn't answer the question, Brooke, but hopefully that answers the question, Brooke. If that makes any sense at all. Uh, next question. Diz Runs Radio episode 825 starts in three, two. Welcome back to Diz Runs Radio, where I talk with runners from all corners of the running world about running, life, and everything in between. I'm your host, Denny Cray, and it's just about time to head out the door for an easy run and a great conversation. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. Let's get started. Well, 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 it's been a, it's been a month, hasn't it? Uh, welcome to the, uh, the March 2020 edition of Listener Q&A. Uh, coronavirus edition, COVID-19 edition. We are stuck smack dab in the middle of it. Um, crazy world, crazy world we live in. Hopefully, uh, for, you know, hopefully things will be getting back to normal sooner rather than later. Who knows, uh, you know, when races will be back on the calendar, when, you know, we'll be able to get out of our houses and go back about our, our lives. But, uh, you know, in, in a world with so much uncertainty and so many things that, uh, that, that feels like we don't know what's going on and what to expect. One thing you can still expect is that, uh, if I'm, if I'm able and we get to the end of a month, there's going to be a listener Q and a episode. And, uh, so far so good feeling, feeling strong, um, feeling healthy, staying at home, uh, figuring out the new normal with, uh, with the girls being at home every day and trying to get some work done, but trying to help out with the parenting and the teaching and keeping things quiet. So Rebecca can do her teaching. Um, it's a moving target. We'll figure it out as we go. But uh, we got we got a good chunk of questions today. Uh, so hopefully, uh, if nothing else, this will be a, an hour hour and a half of a distraction from from whatever whatever life is like right now. That's not like it, it normally would be. Hopefully, this will give you a little bit of a distraction, a little bit of something something normal to hang on to. Uh, for those of you that are new to the show, like I said, this is something we do every month. Uh, at the end of each month, the last Friday of each month is dedicated to your questions and my answers. And with a little bit of, of luck along the way, the answers may actually be helpful, may actually be useful to you, um, whether it's your question or not. But if you have a question that you would like me to answer at some point down the line, the best way to get your questions answered uh, without without question is to come join the Facebook group. Uh, if you just go to disruns.com slash Facebook, or if the next time you're on Facebook, you search for the Disruns tribe, uh, click to join, ask to join. We'll let you in. Uh, and as long as you don't come in and you don't start being all, all spammy, douchey, that type of thing, we'll let you stay. You know, we, we, we operate under the uh, assumption that everyone's innocent until they prove themselves to not be innocent. So we'll let you in. Come hang out, crack some jokes, ask some questions. Uh, you know, the group is, is awesome and we would love to have more awesome runners in it. And then somewhere in the middle of each month, I put out a post that says, Hey, what are your questions for this month's Q and a you ask, then, uh, I answer them. And, uh, like I said, with a little luck, the answers are actually helpful. Um, Although sometimes we get some some pretty fun questions in there, which means there's no way that the answer is going to be helpful. It's just it's just random fun, and those questions are always appreciated as well. So, uh, like I said, we got a we got a pretty good chunk of questions this month. So uh, let's let's dive in with a little Q and A, shall we? Um, first question comes from Pennsylvania. My man Chris Short asks, uh, "What are your impressions of the Aura Ring so far?" So, uh, a bit of context here, especially for those of you who are a bit uh, new to the show or maybe uh, haven't been following along my my Aura Ring 
saga, which is really not a saga, but my, my aura ring situation for the last, uh, I don't know what it's been now, six weeks or so, something like that, that I've had the aura ring. So one of my goals for, for this year, for 2020, that's still intact, even though everything seems to be a bit crazy uh, with, with all this uh, coronavirus situation. But one of my goals for this year is to improve my sleep quality and, and or quantity. Ideally both, right? Um, sleep is so good for us. There's so many valuable things for us, just in overall health and also uh, for our running performance. So I, I wanted to, to step up my sleep game, but it's that's one of those things where you're like, hey, my goal is to, to get better with my sleep. How, how do you quantify that you're getting better with your sleep? I mean, maybe you could say that you're feeling a little bit more, more refreshed in the morning, things like that, but even that's a bit too vague for me. I like to have a bit more concrete evidence that I'm on the right track, that I'm not on the right track, so I can adapt and adjust. So after about uh, somewhere mid-February, mid I guess, uh, I, I finally pulled the plug, or pulled the trigger, I guess, not so much pulling the plug, but pulled the trigger on ordering an, an aura ring, which is, is you know, it's basically, I, I, I don't know if they, they call it a fitness tracker. I hope they don't call it a fitness tracker, but it, it, it's a piece of wearable technology. Looks just like, a, I mean, I, I literally wear it as my wedding, my wedding ring these days. Um, but it's just a, a ring that senses, you know, movement. It has accelerometers on it. It senses, uh, reads your, your, your heart rate, um, blood, blood flow, body temperature. It reads a whole bunch of things. I don't know exactly how it does, which makes me a little bit skeptical on exactly how accurate it is. But in any event, supposedly it's pretty accurate. It's pretty good, pretty good tool to just kind of measure overall, you know, how your body's recovering, how your sleep is, uh, a whole host of things looking at all these different measurements that they have. So, uh, overall my impressions on the Oura ring are that it's, it's pretty good. You know, again, I don't know that I, I would go to the, the bank as far as saying that, that all the readings are absolutely accurate, but like anything that's a, at least I hope like most wearable technologies, you know, they begin, they become more accurate, accurate as you wear them. Um, Maybe not so much that their accuracy improves, but that you develop your own baseline, you develop your own "quote unquote" normal, and as it as you see deviations from said normal, deviations from said baseline, you're able to learn. You know what did I do today that impacted my my baseline in a positive direction, negative direction? You know, should I keep some of these these changes that I've made? See if it becomes a trend. See if it becomes something that I can trust. Was it a fluky one-off? Is there some other factor that, that I'm not even recognizing? You know, you, you just kind of look at the data over time, start to look for trends. So that's that's what I've got, and I feel like I'm starting to see some some trends emerge after about six weeks of using it, which means that you know I'm I'm happy with the Aura Ring so far. Um, you know, just general impressions. The battery life is good. The ease of use is is pretty good. I charge it about once every six or seven days, something like that. So I'm not having to to charge it all the time. It's got a, a little charger. It charges up in a, in a couple of hours. Uh, so you know, sometime while I'm sitting at the at the desk or or whatever, just throw it on the charger, which I have it right next to the desk. Bada boom, bada bam. Short while later, I get the notification that says the ring is charged. So the battery life is good. It's comfortable. Like I said, it's just like a, a wedding ring, basically. My only critique, I guess, if I had to to offer a critique on the Aura Ring, is that the sizes are full sizes, and my ring size for my my ring my ring finger is probably more of a half size. So it's a little bit. They they recommend if you need to get uh, a, a you know if you if you're in between sizes to go up a size. So I'm up a size, which you know just it's a little bit loose sometimes, which sometimes messes up the readings. But overall. I'm happy with it, and I feel like I'm seeing some some progress um, in stepping up the sleep game. So that to me, that makes it 
well worth it. So follow-up, actually two follow-up questions from Chris as well. Uh, first follow-up, how is life without peanut butter going? Second follow-up, uh, what is wrong with you for giving up peanut butter? So again, this is all part of, this is all kind of part of the same question, really. Um, after about a month of wearing the aura ring, or maybe after about three weeks wearing the aura ring, started to, to notice that my readiness score might, which is very much directly tied into your, your sleep score, um, wasn't as good as I wanted to be. Now it wasn't terrible. It was like a 70 out of a hundred typically, or simply in the seventies, I guess every once in a while it would touch 80, but that was like when I would sleep in on a Sunday morning. So I'd have like a nine, nine or 10 hour of, of night sleep. And it's just like, that's, that's not realistic that I'm going to get nine or 10 hours of night sleep every night. So how can I try to improve my readiness score? And I started looking at variables, looking at having a, a drink before, you know, sometime around dinner, between dinner and, and the bedtime hour. Um, because that's, that's one of the things having to have an alcohol in your system late at night that can throw off your, your ability to recover or how, how well you get into good quality sleep. Um, so I looked at that, took, took alcohol off the table for a week or 10 days, something like that. No real change. Looked at caffeine. So I've been trying to cut back on my caffeine later in the day anyway, but I decided, you know, I was, I was typically drinking my last cup of coffee between like one o'clock and two o'clock in the afternoon. I said, what if I stopped my coffee at noon? give my body two extra hours to pretty much rid the caffeine from my system, hopefully get into some better sleep and improve my, my sleep score, my readiness score that way. Cut back the coffee basically at noon, maybe 12, 15. Um, no issue or no, no change to my readiness score. So then I started thinking about peanut butter, which I've long heard in various nutrition podcasts and, and nutrition experts and dietitians and things of that nature that peanut butter is not uh, the, the easiest food for us to digest. It's not maybe as, as healthy as we always think it is causes irritation, causes inflammation. Um, and so I was thinking that maybe I need to give that up because if I'm honest, I eat a lot of peanut butter, um, or at least I used to eat a lot of peanut butter. Um, you know, I, I would, I would go to the, the fridge a couple times a, a day, take two or three heaping tablespoons at a time, uh, out of the, out of the peanut butter jar. Um, think nothing of probably having, I don't know what that would amount to, you know, something like six, seven, 800 calories of peanut butter a day. Wasn't worried about the calories, but it's just, you know, kind of thinking all the time, kind of burying my head in the sand, if you will, that peanut butter doesn't affect me. Like I'm good. I like this peanut butter. It's, it's good proteins, good fats. You know, I can, I can handle it. Um, so I decided to maybe cut back on the peanut butter for a week. And by cut back, I mean eliminate. No peanut butter for a week. Fingers crossed that I would see no improvement in my readiness score, no improvement in my sleep score. Everything would stay status quo, and I could go back to just hammering that peanut butter uh, multiple times a day. And lo and behold, my numbers got way better. Way better. So I decided to extend the test for another week. Numbers stayed up. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what it is right now, but I feel like the, the first two weeks of the no peanut butter trial, I had, I think, a, a sum total of two days that I didn't have uh, an 80 or higher for my readiness score. The two weeks previous, I went back and looked at the data. I think I had four or five days that I had a score that was higher than 79. And most of those, it was like 80, 81. The two weeks without peanut butter, I had a couple of days that were 80, a couple of days that were like 78, 79. And most days were 83, 84, 85. Um, Clearly, it had an impact. Clearly, it had an impact. Um, so apparently, I'm not one of those select few who can get away with eating all the peanut butter they want and have no irritation, inflammation, digestive stresses placed on my body due to uh, eating the the peanut butter versus you know other you know, because it's a legume, not a nut. Yada yada yada. Science, science, science. Um, so 
back to, to Chris's follow-up question. Well, that's, that's why I gave up peanut butter. How's life going without peanut butter? I mean, honestly, it's not that bad. You know, like I, I miss it. I would enjoy sitting down with a tablespoon and a, and a fresh jar. Um, but you know, I mean, I guess to me, like I want to, to stay healthy. I want to improve my sleep game. I want to be a better runner. Um, I want less inflammation in my body in general. If that means no more peanut butter or very, very rarely having a scoop here or there, or having a, a peanut butter cup here or there. Um, okay. You know, like not ideal, not something that I would want to do, but you know, my life is, is going on just fine without peanut butter. I know that might be sacrilege to some short. You're probably one of them. Um, shoot two months ago, it would have been sacrilege to me to say that just go on without peanut butter and life would be just fine. Uh, I would have said you're crazy, but you know, I'm doing all right, doing all right, getting by. Um, miss it a little bit, really miss it. It's almost like that, that comfort snack. Like that was like my go-to snack when I, when I was hungry, um, needed a little, a little something, a little sustenance, like, yeah, just give me a, give me a spoon and, uh, we're good to go. One positive, I'll tell you what, we don't run out of tablespoons anymore between, uh, doing the, the dishes. So, you know, I guess, I guess there's a positive to have given up, uh, peanut butter, but, uh, short, thanks for the questions. Um, and for those of you that uh, are still enjoying your peanut butter, enjoy it. But don't say I didn't tell you that, that there might just be a situation where cutting back or eliminating that peanut butter might just be good for you from an inflammatory response situation. So is what it is. But uh, thanks for the questions, my friend. Next question comes from Ellen. She says, how did all the coronavirus race cancellations affect you? And how are you adjusting your plans? So um, from a purely races being canceled effect for me personally, Ellen, it, it zero effect, zero effect. I had no spring races scheduled. I had one that I was kind of sort of looking at as actually a uh, next weekend race. There was a, there's a local trail race on, on April the 4th that I was kind of sort of thinking about trying to talk with one of my buddies from, from college, uh, into, to running it with me, uh, since we don't see each other as often as we used to, we are actually roommates, uh, one year. So a pretty good friend of mine. Um, and, and I was like, Hey, you know, why don't we, why don't we maybe think about doing this, this trail race together? Um, hadn't heard back from him yet. And before I could kind of follow up, it was like, well, clearly that race is not going to happen. So, you know, I wasn't signed up for it. So I guess it doesn't really change my plans any. Um, and I don't, I mean, I literally have zero races on my calendar, um, for all of the future right now. You know, I obviously, hopefully I will be adding some races at some point because I do enjoy racing a little bit. Um, but from, from, you know, from, from today until forever right now, my race calendar is, is completely empty. So it really hasn't adjusted my plans too much personally, obviously from a, from a coaching perspective, lots of my, my athletes have had races canceled, um, or postponed one way or the other. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of juggling, a lot of shuffling going on, kind of looking at, all right, well, we didn't, we hadn't signed up for fall races yet. So now some of these spring races are happening in the fall. So figuring out that situation. And for those that had signed up for some races in the fall, hoping fingers crossed that the races will be scheduled on weekends that they weren't already racing. So we don't have to try to pick and choose between one race or the other. But I mean, honestly, just like everybody, we're just, we're, you know, from a coaching perspective, even for me, from a running perspective and, you know, not running with my friend Kate is as much really at all anymore because, you know, we're trying to, to practice social distancing. Um, you know, we're just, we're all just taking it one day at a time. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hopefully something that will, um, calm down sooner rather than later, although that's probably overly optimistic on my part. Um, but hopefully as spring starts to come, and I know there's some people that think that maybe the, the warmer weather might have, uh, might help to slow that, slow down the spread a little bit. Hopefully that'll be the case. We'll see. Um, but whenever life gets back to normal, I'll put some races on the calendar. 
Um, I've got one uh, that's in the end of end of May, another trail race that that I'm not like super going to be bummed out if it gets canceled. But if it's if life is back to normal uh, by the end of May and we can run a, a trail race in in on Memorial Day weekend, I might do it. I might do it. We'll see. Um, but but you know, all that to say, you know, this thing sucks and. Uh, it's frustrating and it's enough to, to get you upset and irritated and angry, but all we can do is do the best we can and hopefully life will get back to normal soon by, because we're having such a disruption right now with social distancing, staying at home, figuring out the new normal, things like that. Hopefully we'll put us back to, uh, to the real normal a bit sooner rather than later. But, uh, you know, I think just, uh, I'm just adjusting my plans by taking it one day at a time, which again, honestly, pretty much kind of how I live my life anyway, is just. Take care of today. Figure out tomorrow uh, when tomorrow becomes today. So thank you for the question, Ellen. I know that you've had some some races that have gotten uh, jacked up, and you're going to have an interesting fall schedule. So, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. That's what we do. Uh, Rob, next question comes from Rob, says, Is there a benefit to wearing compression socks to a race if it should be at, uh, if it should be an hour or more of a commute? I've worn them during races, and I didn't notice a benefit, but was curious if it would help if sitting in a car or playing for a significant amount of time before a race. Thanks. So, Rob, honestly, um, I can't think of any good reason or any reason that it would really, really be beneficial to wear the compression socks in the car on the way to the race. Maybe, maybe if you're running late and you're literally going to have to step out of the car right to the, to the starting line. Um, but even then I don't think it's going to do much because you, you know, your, your blood flow isn't going crazy at that point. You don't have to worry about blood kind of settling or pooling or whatever. Uh, you don't have to, to, don't have any real issues with, uh, you know, venous return unless you have poor circulation. Now, if you have poor circulation, maybe that's a different story, in which case you're probably wearing compression gear most of the time anyway, uh, to try to help keep the blood from pooling down in your, your calves and, and keep it pushing back up towards the heart. So in that case, probably a benefit, but you know, if you're just driving an hour to a race, um, I don't think so. I mean, get, get there early enough that you can get out of the car, shake your legs out, walk around just a little bit, you know, I mean, use the bathroom, all, all of that kind of pre-race stuff. Um, but, but where compression gear is really beneficial, no question about it is post-race. You know, like you said, you've worn it during a race and didn't feel like it helped because there's, there's not really any, um, measurable difference. Now for some people, there's a psychological, a placebo effect of wearing compression gear during a race. So if that's you, which is not you, Rob, but for those others listening, you know, keep on keeping on. But when it comes to actual measurable benefits of compression gear, it's all about helping with recovery. It's all about helping to push that blood back out of the muscles, back to, or not push it all the way out, but push it back, back towards the heart so it can be reoxygenated, recirculated. Um, and so, you know, saving your compression gear for post-race, especially post-race, if you've got that longer commute to get back home, definitely going to see an improvement there. So um, wearing it before the race, eh, wearing it after the race, 100%, 100%. Thank you for the question, Rob. Hope that that all makes sense. Next question comes from Joanne. She says, I have no goal races right now since my race was canceled. I'm wondering what my training should look like when I have no idea when races will resume. Should I just try to run a few times a week plus some, some more strength training to kind of main, keep things in balance? So, uh, Joanne, yeah, I mean, I think that, that you mostly got it. I think that you mostly got it. Because, again, we're all in this in this holding pattern right now of what what are we going to do? When are the races coming back? You know, you, 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 you know. And I think most of us probably know that the, the idea of trying to just like maintain peak, peak fitness for an extended period of time is not going to work out. It's not going to go very well. So, you know, you, you got to scale things back, maybe not super far back. You know, maybe this is one of those cases where you want to raise up your floor to help raise your ceiling, which is something we talked about before, where, you know, you kind of build 
a, a base of fitness that's a bit more advanced than it was at the start of a training cycle or a year ago or things like that. Uh, my example from, from my own life was that, you know, I used to kind of consider 10 miles as a pretty good standard long run. And these days I'm more like 14, 15 is my standard long run. All right. So it's just a few more miles on a regular basis helps to ma- maintain my fitness at a little bit higher level. And I think that that's kind of what you're saying in your question, Joanne. And that's kind of what I think you should do is find a good spot to maintain your fitness. You know, keep getting a few runs in a week and hopefully getting a, a long run in uh, a week. That's most of the time in that, whatever that range is for you, that's kind of a higher end of, of doable on a, on a regular basis. And so that that higher end of doable starts to become easy. You know, when I was running 10 miles a week as my standard long run, Moving it to 15 was kind of a daunting challenge, but over several months, you know, it's kind of become that 15 is not really that big of a deal or 14, something like that. Some weeks I'll, I will quote unquote only do 10 or 12. Most weeks I'm 14, 15, occasionally 16, 17, even when I'm not training for anything just to kind of maintain that level of fitness at that point. And so I would, I would say that, that for you, Joanne, again, sliding scale to dependent on exactly where you are. I'm not sure exactly what races you were training for things of that nature, but you know, sliding scale to, you know, what was your, your former kind of standard non-training level of long run. Can you bump that up a few miles or a few K's, uh, to kind of just move you a little bit farther forward, go for it. That not only is that going to help you just improve your fitness overall, but that way, when races do start to pop back up on the schedule, you'll be that much closer to being ready to, to put the finishing touches on being race ready, especially if a race pops up that you don't have, you know, full eight, 12 weeks to, to prepare for. Maybe, maybe there's a race that, that, um, gets rescheduled and it's, you know, only six weeks out Well, you, you've given yourself a little bit, uh, shorter runway, uh, or a longer runway. I don't know. Mixing my metaphors here, but you're putting yourself in a position where, you don't need as much time to ramp up to be ready for that race by keeping your, your base level of fitness just a little bit higher. So hope all that makes sense, you know, and definitely, you know, if you mix in a little bit more strength training, some of the little things, things like that, that's definitely going to help as well. So, you know, kind of covering your fitness from a bunch of different angles there, Joanne is definitely a good idea. Um, and if you can keep your, your base level up just a touch higher than it, than it used to be, Hey, that's, that's, you know, that's maybe the best of all worlds at that point. Next question comes from Nicole. She says, uh, how to keep from eating all the carbs in the house? Uh, just kidding. Wait. So I'm, I'm assuming, uh, we got a little bit of, you know, kind of self quarantine and, and eating all the things because Hey, what else is there to do? Um, you know, you do you, of course, is, is always going to be my, my recommendation. But if there's, if this is a real serious question for anybody that's kind of, you know, struggling with, I got all this stuff in the house, you know, and trying to, to keep, uh, keep things under control. My, my best advice for, for that, um, not just in, Corona coronavirus time, but in, in life in general is it's a lot harder to eat things that aren't in the house, you know, like, like some of those impulse snacks, impulse eatings. Um, if you don't buy them, not very often are you going to like go to the, go to the refrigerator or go to the cabinet looking for a snack and be like, well, hell there's, there's no, um, you know, there's no, whatever Snickers bars here or fun size Snickers here. Let me get in the car, drive to Walgreens, pick up a bag, drive home. Like, like you're just gonna be like, all right, well, I guess I'll, I'll opt for, you know, an apple or carrot sticks or whatever, you know, whatever kind of healthier snack options that, that you might be into. So, you know, when it comes to avoiding or having the willpower to keep from eating all the carbs, all the junk in the house, when you're stuck at home for weeks on end, you know, once, once it's gone, don't replenish the stash as much as you can. That makes the willpower piece a whole lot easier 
when there's no option, there's no temptation. So, uh, you know, but, but in the meantime, don't be afraid to splurge a little bit. You know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna lose all the fitness. You're not going to gain all the weight by having a little bit of extra ice cream, an extra glass of wine, things like that. If that kind of helps with getting through the, the quarantine time, Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you that you can't do that. Next question comes from Anita. She says, I ran my first marathon just over a week ago yesterday, and yesterday, sorry, just over a week ago, and yesterday was the first day that I didn't feel soreness. Is a week and a half unusually long to have stiffness slash soreness after a marathon? First of all, Anita, congratulations on your first marathon. Let's give you, give you a little uh, applause there. Welcome to Club 26.2. Uh, hope that, that you had fun. Hope that you enjoyed the experience. And now to your question, is a week and a half... Uh, unusually long to have some stiffness and soreness after a marathon? Absolutely not. Is it unusually long to have some stiffness and soreness after your first marathon? Absolutely not. All right. You know, think about what you just did. You just ran farther than you ever have before. You just pushed your body to a new limit than you've ever been to before. And depending on how your training went leading up to the race, you know, maybe you did 18 miles was your longest run or 20 or even 22. In any event, you're still going four, six, eight miles farther than you've ever gone before. So you, you kind of put your body through the ringer. You know, you, you gave your body a, a bit of a shock that it's not, uh, not used to. And so, you know, it's going to take a little longer for you to recover. All right. Um, that said, or in addition to that, I guess it was also a race. So maybe you pushed a little bit harder than you would have during your training runs during some of those longer training runs. So there's even more stress and strain that you put on, put your body under taken seven days, 10 days, 14 days for all of some of that soreness and achiness and stiffness to go away. Totally normal, totally normal. And here's the, the other thing, the next, if there's a next time, which again, you don't have to ever run another marathon. You can be one and done and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you decide to run another marathon at somewhere down the line, your recovery will be easier. It may only be seven days instead of 10 may only be six days instead of 10, whatever, you know, but, but that shock that you're putting on your body, that stress and strain, even though it's going to be more than typical in your training leading up to it, you've done it before your body will remember a little that, that, yeah, we've done this before we can, we can bounce back. And the more consistently, the more frequently you do these marathons, if you continue to go down the marathon path, the recovery time will get less and less. Now it may never get to zero, especially if you're pushing hard, but you will definitely get to a point where, you know, it just takes a few days, maybe a week at most, and you'll be good to go. But for the first one, taking 10 days or so, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with it at all. So thank you for the question, Anita. Next question comes from Michaela says, uh, what are some good ways to find joy in running when there is no race to train for? Um, Michaela, this is, this is maybe, maybe, uh, one of the most valuable questions, at least timely valuable questions that we've had on the show, uh, in, in the entirety of listener Q and a episodes, which is a bold statement. I, I recognize that's a, that's a very bold statement. Um, but it's something that I know some people struggle with. And I know that because I know I used to struggle with it. Uh, if I'm, if I'm reading between the lines, what I'm, what I'm hearing is, is that with, with races being canceled because of COVID-19, um, you know, it's kind of like, what's almost like, what's the point of running? Or it's, it's a much more of a struggle to get out the door and get your miles in when there's not that race that you're training for, when there's not that allure of, you know, the running community coming together and running set distance and pushing yourself to go faster for that distance and, or to get that 
get that shiny stuff, get that bling at the end of it. Um, and, and there's no, you know, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with being motivated to run by races. All right. Races are fun. Races are a lot of fun. And, and I get it. I mean, I'm, you know, like, even though I, I answered Ellen's question earlier that I don't have any races on the calendar, it's not because I don't like racing that I don't have any races on the calendar. I'm just, I'm just not one to make plans out more than, you know, like a month or so out. So, um, which for some races that causes me some, some issues sometimes. Um, but you know, typically, especially when I don't have a big goal race I'm working towards, it's kind of like, oh yeah, there's a race, you know, a couple hours away next weekend. Sure. Why not? So, you know, clearly I, I'm no longer in a point in a, a point of my running quote unquote career, um, where I'm super motivated by races. Like I'm going to get out and train. I'm going to get out and run. I'm going to get my miles in, uh, for reasons beyond racing. And I think that, that with where we are right now with races being put on hold and not knowing exactly when races are going to get uh, taken off of hold and we're going to start having races, uh, again, I think that that's something that, that we can all kind of work towards and try to move towards a little bit where races are part of the process, but they aren't the end all be all of the process. They're not the, they're not the, pardon the pun. They're not the finish line, you know, um, where we run because we enjoy running, where we run because we love what it does for us. And if we get to mix in a race once in a while, Hey, icing on the cake, but we still have the cake. Again, I'm, I'm full of mixed metaphors today, which is fan- fantastic, fantastic on a whole bunch of levels that we won't get into right now. But, um, you know, so, so, you know, how to find joy in running, how to find, uh, motivation to running. If maybe there's a bit of a motivation struggle that you're dealing with Michaela, or obviously anyone else with no races to, to be training for right now, you know, it, it obviously it's going to be you know, individually specific, you know, the things that you enjoy about running are the things that, that are going to help you get out the door, maybe different from, will probably be different across everybody listening, but, you know, just look for what those, that time, that routine can provide. And I think that, that right now I kind of talked about it once already earlier in the, the, uh, kind of the intro of today's episode, but with everything else being so uncertain, just going out and getting your miles in, going out and training, like you had a race still coming up, is like one of the few things for most of us, at least that we can even pretend is even close to normal right now. You know, hopefully we don't get to the point where, uh, you can't get, you know, where we're not going to be completely locked down and like, you can't come outside unless you are just walking your dog and that's it. You know, hopefully we can still get out and go for a run. We can still get out and exercise. Maybe there's, there's trails, maybe there's, there's state parks or national parks that are closed. We can't go there, but we can still run the streets of our neighborhood. We can still, um, go to some, you know, some, some private land and go run on, on private trails or whatever, you know, we can still hopefully keep getting our runs in. So there's, there's one aspect to find joy in running this. It's one of the few things that's normal right now. Along similar lines, maybe at this point, it's like your one chance to be by yourself, to have a little bit of time for just you, you know, with, with the kids not being in school right now with, with, uh, spouses, partners, uh, live, you know, working from home, you potentially working from home as well. You know, you don't have that time in the car, you know, of, of the commute time. That's just kind of your time. You don't have that time when everybody else is gone at the different activities and you're at home and you can just breathe and, and, you know, do something monotonous, do some dishes, do some laundry, watch some mindless TV that you don't have to worry about your five-year-old, you know, asking questions about, uh, you know, some, some less than, uh, um, less than, than 
I don't know what's the word I'm looking for here. You know what I'm saying though. You don't want to have your five year old asking questions about the Sopranos maybe right now. So you can watch the Sopranos. You can watch trashy, you know, housewives or whatever. You know, you, you don't have that time because people are home. People aren't going anywhere. If you go out the door for a run, you get to go somewhere. You get to get out. You get to, to have some of that time for yourself. Um, Maybe it's the fresh air. Maybe it's the sunshine, you know, especially depending on, you know, those of you that live farther north areas where spring is starting to be a thing again. It's like, oh, we can get out of the winter. We can get some sunshine, get a little bit of fresh air, feel like, like the renew, you know, the rebirth of the earth after the winter. Uh, so you can get out and find joy in, in nature or just, you know, and, and again, nature could be a, a fancy trail. It could be just your neighborhood. And hopefully, you know, there's people that aren't going to be, it's not going to be as busy out. So it'll be quiet. It'll be calm. It'll be peaceful. Um, you know, there's the mental endorphins or the, you know, there's the, the, the hormones and the endorphins that come out from a, a good run, a good workout. So you just feel better, you know, again, with everything being crazy and stressful and unknown right now, just, just pushing yourself, coming back in, just like, oh, that could be a thing. So lots of, lots of things that I can think of. Those are, at least those are the ones that I can really think of as far as good ways to, to still be motivated, to still find joy, to still, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it to, to, I almost feel like running is more important now than it was a month ago for a lot of us, because it's that one thing that's still normal. It's that one thing we can still hang our hat on and we can still lean on. We can still make sense of the world because we can run. So, um, you know, even though there's no races and even though that, that may dim, dim the shine, for you, Michaela, for some, for others as well. I think if it, I think we don't have to look too hard right now, especially right now with everything being so crazy to find some positives, to find some positives of running, maybe not positives of the situation we're in, but to find some positives of what running can still do for us and help us to, to get over the hump of going, you know what? I may not have a race, but God, I still need this run. I still need this run and then get out and do it and get out and do it. So hopefully that, that gives you some suggestions, Michaela, or at least it helps get your gears turning a little bit so you can find that one or two things for you that are going to help your running to still be very, a very joyous thing. If something that you really want to continue doing, um, and then hopefully, you know, not too much farther down the road. I know I've said this a few times already as well. Hopefully there'll be some races that'll come back on the calendar, uh, sooner rather than later. So thank you for the question, ma'am. And, and obviously let us know if you're struggling, if let us know if there's things we can do to kind of give you that little boot, the little kick in the rear to get you out the door. Hopefully then you can come back a much better person, uh, or at least in a much better state of mind. Uh, and then you go, Oh yeah, that's why, that's why I still need to get out and do it. And then you'll be good to go from there. Next question coming from Karen says, uh, before all this COVID-19 stuff, my heart rate training was going pretty well. I was doing a pretty good job at keeping it where it was supposed to be. Now with all this virus stuff, I'm completely stressed and I'm seeing it in the heart rate data. What is the best way to deal with this situation? So Karen, um, this is, this is like one of those perfect examples of how, uh, stress is stress is stress. You know, um, it's, it's so easy to just kind of try to, to put everything in its place and like, yeah, there's life stress and then there's workout stress and then there's relationship stress and there's emotional stress and there's, but, the, but they're all different, but to our bodies, they're not to our bodies. They're not to our bodies. Stress is stress is stress. And so for, for you and for all of us, for, for me, for anybody who's doing heart rate training, um, you may find that, that your heart rate is up a little bit higher right now than it usually is. And it does make it a little bit more difficult to, to, you know, you have to slow down, 
you have to slow down. Um, are there other ways to kind of handle it? Are there other ways to help bring your, your heart rate down a little bit? Um, I mean, I think it just kind of goes back to things that we can do to relax. So, you know, maybe, maybe before you go for your run, especially if you're running later in the day, you know, I know for me, I don't feel like my heart rate has been impacted that much because I'm getting out and I'm getting after it first thing in the morning before I've really woken up before I've listened to too much news before I've, I, you know, seen too much on social media and that, that gets me worked up. Like I'm coming out of bed, doing my warm up out the door. So like it hasn't really caused my heart rate issues or I haven't had any issues with my heart rate because of it. But if you're running later in the day, if you're running to help de-stress after a busy day, a day of hearing all the news and seeing all the things, maybe before you go for that run, take five or 10 minutes to do like a, a meditation, some type of, of calming breath work to try to help just whew, let go of some of that stress so that when you get out and go for your run, your heart rate's not going to be as crazy. Um, you know, similar things we've talked about before, limited caffeine, because again, the caffeine is going to have your heart rate going a mile a minute. So if you're, if you can get your runs in before you've had any coffee again, which maybe means that you got to run earlier in the day, that's going to help, but just really like anything that you can do to kind of help just relax a bit and not just before your run, although that's going to maybe have the most direct impact into keeping your heart rate under control or keeping it having a little bit easier time, keeping it under control during your run, but just in life in general. You know, a little bit more time just relaxing, a little bit more time doing some yoga, which I know you've been awesome carrying it, doing your yoga this year, which, you know, again, another round of applause for that. Um, you know, I'm sure that that's helping. Even if you, even if you're seeing your heart rate be higher, I can only imagine that if you haven't been doing yoga pretty much every day in 2020, um, it'd probably be even higher than that, you know, even higher than it, that it already is. So doing some of those relaxation things, meditating, sleeping a little bit more, you know, if you don't have to commute anymore, maybe that gives you an extra half an hour that you can sleep in the morning maybe even more than that. So, you know, just doing some of those things to take care of our bodies, to help our bodies, you know, things that help our bodies handle stress, sleep, dietary, uh, you know, just, just sticking, you know, not too much alcohol, too much caffeine late in the day that then jacks up your sleep. So some of those types of things, maybe giving up peanut butter. I don't know. I don't know. Call me crazy. Um, but just, you know, making some of those changes, doing a bit more meditation, a bit more quiet time, journaling, whatever, Netflix and chill, like whatever works for you to relax a bit more, try to lean into those things. And hopefully that'll at least keep your heart rate a bit more under control, but stress is stress is stress. And so the more, the more this thing plays on, the more stress we get by having everybody in the house all the time, the more we don't know what the heck's going on in Washington and what they're trying to do and what's truth and what's not and social media and all those things. It's stress is stress is stress. We got to just try to, as much as we can counteract that relaxing, maybe even cutting back on your runs a little bit. So that's just a bit less physical stress. So we can get ahead of some of the emotional, social, so, social, economic, uh, mental stresses that we're dealing with right now. But uh, it's tough. It's tough. We just got to keep taking it one day at a time. Keep looking for ways to relax, no matter which way we turn, no matter which way we turn. Thank you for the question, Karen. Hopefully there's something helpful in there as well. Uh, next two questions, both from Barb. First one, please elaborate on the peanut butter elimination. Does this mean all peanuts? Did you switch to almond butter for that fix? I'm a peanut butter fiend too. And wondering if that affects me as well. So Barb, um, you know, obviously I've already kind of elaborated on a, on a, a fair bit, but, uh, more specifically to your question, you know, what kind of switches have I made? Have I, if it's all peanuts, just peanut butter, whatever, and what have you. Um, I mean, basically, I don't know. I'll make up numbers because why not? It's my podcast. I can make up stats left and right, just like anybody else can. 97.3% of my peanut intake is peanut butter. So switching, you know, to eliminating all peanuts, is, it's basically a non-factor. Like if I'm eliminating peanut butter from my diet, I'm eliminating all peanuts from my diet other than the occasional, you know, occasional 
peanuts in a shell or something like that, which, you know, literally I haven't had an opportunity to have peanuts besides peanut butter in the last month. So, um, so yeah, I guess I've eliminated all peanuts from my diet. Will I have peanuts at some point in the future? Maybe, but it's not going to be as much of a go-to snack. Like if, if I'm at, if I'm, if I'm somewhere where they have peanuts from in a ball game, whenever there's ball games again, like I'm not going to be ordering peanuts anymore, you know, that type of thing. Um, so yeah, I guess I've pretty much given up all peanut butter. Have I switched to almond butter to, to kind of get that fix? No, no. And here's why. And, and I don't mean this in any type of, of backhanded way, but like switching from peanut butter to almond butter, I might as well switch from peanut butter to, to, I don't know, to wasabi. Like, like they're not, they're not, they're not the same. They're not the same. And, and anybody, and, and if this is you, Barb, this isn't a direct, this isn't a direct Barb at you, Barb. Um, but anybody who tries to tell me that almond butter and peanut butter are the same thing, like, like, I don't believe anything that you say anymore. Like they're not, they're not completely different, but they're not the same, you know, or maybe a, a more apt analogy than, than peanut butter to wasabi would be like, oh, well, you don't like grape jelly or, you know, you, 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 you can't have grape jelly anymore. So like, here, try this orange marmalade. Like it's pretty much the same, right? Like it's still a, a sweet spread thing that goes on your toast or goes on your peanut butter or whatever the case. Like, no, it's not the same. Not the same. Almond butter, not the same. Almond butter is not going to scratch the itch. It's not going to deliver me from the, from the fix. Like it's just not. Not hating on almond butter. I've had it before. It's not bad. Not the same thing as peanut butter, though. Not even close. Not even close. So, no, I didn't switch to almond butter. Um, I've just given it up. Just given it up. Will I, down the road, maybe get a jar of almond butter here and there? To be determined. To be determined. I'm not going to say no, but it's not like it's. It's not like I've just you know stopped buying peanut butter and started buying almond butter, and you know everything. Everything you know, move on. Life. Life is back to normal. Like no, I don't have peanut butter anymore, and I'm not entirely happy about it, but. Like I said earlier in, in answering Chris's questions, um, proof's in the pudding. Like the data, the, the, you know, I can ignore the data. I can bury my head in my sand or, or I can look at it and go, well, it's helping. It's helping, you know, and and lean into it. And that's what I'm doing. So uh, no switches, uh, nothing that, uh, that that I've done to, to replace it. Other than, you know, my snack, my snacks have had to go different directions. I'm eating more, I'm eating more pecans or pecans whichever way you want to want to announce it. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to eat some more actual nuts as opposed to legumes, but not like in the butter variety, just like I've got a bag of, of pecans in the, in the, uh, in the, in the cabinet. And I just, you know, eat some, eat a handful here and there. Um, so, you know, trying to, to get some of the calories and things like that, that way, I guess, but, um, no, no, like shift to sunflower butter or cashew butter or anything like that. Just, nope, ain't doing it. Ain't doing it. Um, but if you have any more specific questions, Barb, happy to, to answer those for you as we go. Uh, speaking of which, another question from Barb that, that doesn't deal with peanut butter. Uh, so what's the deal with blood blisters? Channel my inner Seinfeld. What, what is the deal? What is the deal with blood blisters? Um, I, I find that I, I find I don't get regular blisters anymore, but I've been sporting some nasty blood blisters lately on the top of the, my second toes on the outside of the balls of my foot on the big toe side for what it's worth. I wear shoes that fit me well and in gingy socks to keep my toes from rubbing together. So, um, honestly, Barb, and I, I was pretty sure I was aware of this, but I know we've had enough medical folks that listen to the show that I was like, I better fact check myself on this before I say something that's that's too ridiculous. There's really not much of a difference outside of the obvious between blood blisters and regular blisters, okay? Um, as far as what causes them. So the, the cause is the same. The cause is friction against our skin, and it's a, the, the blister, blood or otherwise, is actually our body's defense mechanism to prevent 
too much cellular tissue tissue damage from whatever it is that's rubbing. In this case, something with your shoe sock combination is rubbing on your on your toes. Um, so the body creates the blister, which kind of acts as a shock absorber. It adds, acts as a protective layer between the, the flesh of your foot and your shoe or your sock, or some combination therein. And it keeps them from rubbing, keeps them from, from doing any more cellular damage. That's what the blister pops up. The reason you have a blood blister versus the, the clear fluid of a quote-unquote regular blister is just that wherever that tissue is rubbing, it's breaking a capillary or two. So it's leaking some, some you know, blood cells, some red blood cells into the, the fluid mixture, um, which if you notice, when you, if, you, if you go ahead and drain them, it doesn't, it's not like it's a regular, like it's not like it's blood level of viscosity that comes out. It's just, it's that same clear, you know, very runny liquid that comes out. It's just, it's just red tinge. It's because there's red blood cells in there due to some capillary rupture from that, that friction that's going on. So in order to, to solve it, in order to resolve the issue, we got to go up the chain somewhere. Something is rubbing that hasn't been, been rubbing before. You say your shoes fit you. So, you know, on, on one hand, it's like, well, it's, it's not, it can't be the shoes, but you know, has the shoe, is it a different model of shoe? Is it a new pair of the same shoes that maybe aren't quite exactly the same to the level where you probably can't tell by looking at them, but maybe they don't fit quite the same. Um, what other things could have changed? Are you running on a different terrain, you know, with, with coronavirus stuff going on? Maybe you're not running your usual routes or maybe you're running more on a side of a, you know, a road that's, that's angled as opposed to a flat track with, with friends or whatever. So you're putting different stresses and strains on your body when you're running. And, and that means your, your foot is rubbing differently in your shoe, running more trails versus more roads. I know I get not a ton of blisters, but if I'm off road for a while, I'm more likely to get a blister or two than if I'm just running on the road, just because the uneven surfaces and how my foot shifts around a little bit in the shoes to maintain balance. So that that could be an issue. Um, you know, there's, there's so many factors going on, but, but at the end of the day, if you're getting a blisters, things are rubbing, things are rubbing. Maybe you got a good pedicure done and you kind of shaved away at some calluses and some, some of that, that hard skin that, that is built up over time to protect you. And so you've got this, this raw sensitive skin on your feet that all of a sudden it doesn't have that layer of protection from the callus. So the body, Hey, we got to protect ourselves here. It throws a, a, a blister up, which eventually those tend to turn into calluses. Right. Um, and so, you know, it, maybe that's what's going on. And it's not that anything's any different as far as shoe sock combination, but it's just that you got a nice pedicure done and you took care of that protective layer that was in, in place already. And so your body's laying down another one, laying down another one. So, um, lots of different possibilities that could be leading to the blisters, but no reason to freak out about a blood blister versus a regular blister. Basically the same thing, just, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a, of a capillary, uh, rupture going on with the, with that as a result of the friction, which leads to some blood cells leaching into, or, or leaking into the, uh, the fluid that is made up of the blister. And that's why you have a blood blister. So, uh, hope that that sets your mind at ease and hope that helps you kind of work backwards a little bit to figure out why is it, why is my foot rubbing all of a sudden and figure out how to, uh, combat it, circumvent it and get back to, uh, living a blister flea bliss. Easy for me to say, getting back to living a blister free lifestyle. Is that even a lifestyle? I don't know. I don't know, but thank you for the questions, Barb, uh, and and hope that uh, hope that you're doing well. Uh, next two questions, both from Steve from the Left Coast. Steve says, uh, "I'm considering training for a marathon. The longest race I've ever run so far is a half marathon. I don't have a steady work schedule, so trying to stick to a, a strict marathon training plan isn't practical for me. Can I just go out and get my mileage in whenever time permits and keep increasing my weekly mileage by 10% until I reach 40 miles a week and maintain that mileage?" 
due to the coronavirus, I don't know when my marathon race will be, but I want to keep training and be ready. So, um, in, in theory, Steve, your, your plan makes sense. Should be fine. No real issues there. Um, in practice though, um, it's hard for me to go into specifics because I obviously don't know your lifestyle. I don't know exactly what's going on, what, why your schedule is so crazy, things like that. What I would say is that for most people, and again, this is painting with a broad brush. It's not meant to be one size fits all. Most people having some level of routine is beneficial. And even with, with a crazy unpredictable schedule, there's still probably some room for routine mixed in. You know, I know that I've worked with, with clients in the past that have kind of like, you know, they work a, a 24 hour shift. They're a firefighter. They work a 24 hour shift and they have, you know, two or three days off in a row, then another 24 hour shift and two or three days off in a row. So it kind of staggers. It's not like every Saturday can be the same thing, but every, you know, every second quote unquote off break, you know, they get an extra day or something like that. So you kind of look at, you look at the schedule, look for, you know, maybe look beyond just one week and look at a two week or a monthly schedule and do those tend to line up fairly close together. And if so, you can kind of create some routine, create a, a somewhat standard schedule in that broader picture. So it's not every week necessarily, but you're still getting the benefits of, of, um, routine. Maybe it, maybe that doesn't line up, but maybe you're able to look at, you know, on work days, you can do X days off. You can do Y. And sometimes the, the, you know, the long run is going to be a Saturday. Sometimes it's going to be a Tuesday. You know, you just kind of adjust as you go. So I would, I would encourage you to try to look for routine or some, some consistency as much as possible, but don't, don't just, you know, and which, what, what it sounds like you're doing is good. Not just saying, well, well, screw it. I, I can't find routine. So I'm SOL. Like that's not the case. So try to find it if you can. If not, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of increasing by about 10% every week works. Remember, 10% rule is not really a rule. It's more of a guideline, more of a rule of thumb, loose loose guideposts along the way. Uh, for those that aren't aware of it, basically what it says is that you shouldn't increase your total training volume per week more than about 10%. So it kind of just keeps a, a gradual progression going so that you're not overloading your system, doing too much, asking for an injury to happen by by, by doing too much too quickly. Um, but again, 10% isn't a magic number for some people. It might be that 6% is as much as they can handle. Some people might be able to get away with a little bit more of 12 or 14%, about 10% good guideline to stick to color outside the lines as you need to. Um, and then, yeah, you know, once you get up to, to 35, 40 miles a week, if, if it fits to maintain that in your schedule, you'll be good to go. And then you won't need a whole lot, most likely of ramp up to get ready for a marathon once races are back on the calendar. So that's not a bad strategy, but don't get don't get too caught up in the 10% and don't, again, don't just assume that because your schedule is, is fairly, uh, you know, unpredictable that there isn't some predictability in the unpredictableness, if that makes sense. So hope that helps Steve and, and good luck training for that first marathon, whenever it may be. Uh, another question from Steve in order to increase my weekly mileage, I'm considering running twice a day, but when would it be appropriate to run twice a day? Um, I've talked about doubles before and I'll, I'll link back in the show notes today to a previous quick tip. I think it was a quick tip about, about adding doubles to the mix and, and doubles for some people it's, it's a good call. Um, I think that you need to have a good base of fitness already in place. And, and, you know, obviously saying that like, it's hard to just quantify what a good base of fitness is, but you need to be fit. You need to be strong. You need to be healthy because ultimately what you're doing when you add a second run per day in, you know, hearkening back just, uh, what was it? Two weeks ago to, uh, the, the, this law, my law, 
I love, I still feel like such a douche that I still kind of love talking about my law of accumulated fatigue, right? If you add in a second run to the equation, you're messing, you're messing with multiple variables of the law of accumulated fatigue. So not only are you adding more training volume to the mix, you're also decreasing the recovery window because instead of running, you know, instead of running Tuesday morning and running again on Wednesday morning and having basically 24 hours of, of your body to recover, adapt, get stronger from the first run to the second run. Now you you've shrunk that window down to, I don't know what, 10 hours, 12 hours, something like that from your Tuesday morning run to your Tuesday evening run. So you're getting more volume going on. You're getting less recovery. All right. So you got, you got factors going in two different directions that are increasing your amount of fatigue that you're likely to feel from adding that double in, which spoiler alert also can increase your likelihood for breaking down, dealing with injuries. So if you're going to do doubles, a couple of rules of thumb to keep in mind. One, do not run the second run hard. The second run has to be an easy run. Now, maybe in an ideal world, you're doing an easy run in the morning, easy run in the evening on your double days. But if you want to do a hard workout in the morning, you know, if, you, if that fits into your plan and what you're doing and you're doing it intelligently, hey, get after it in the morning. Keep that easy run short and easy to just kind of help loosen things up, speed recovery, things of that nature. All right. But you don't want to do uh, uh, two hard workouts on the same day, anything like that. Because again, now you're really jacking up that, that accumulated fatigue uh, ratio relationship. And you're just, you're asking for trouble. Um, also don't, I would say don't default to doubles. Like if you can add in an extra couple miles here and there on some days that you're not regularly running, that's again, paint with a broad brush here, but that's probably the better option because it, again, it, it's, it's making sure that you've got as much time as possible in theory, at least between your runs to make sure that your body is recovering and adapting and, and you're not adding too much, you know, you're not playing with those variables too much to where you're, you're maybe increasing the risk of injury. Cause obviously we don't want that to happen. You know, that's, that's a, that's a pretty good way to really cut your, your mileage is to get injured. So we want to avoid that. Um, but if you're fit, if you're strong, if you're healthy, if you're taking care to really f- maximize your recovery time when you're, when you're not running and not working and not doing other things, um, you know, then maybe it's, it's okay. If you can't add another day in, if you're already running six days a week and you're, you're, you're like me and you're like, I am going to have a day off. Um, you know, at that point, maybe you mix in a double if you can't run longer. But again, if you can, if you, if your second run is only going to be two or three miles, which it shouldn't be any crazy, uh, most cases shouldn't be any crazy amount of distance. Well, can you just add those two or three miles as, as part of your warm up or cool down for your morning run and just be done with it in one run? Like that would be, to me, that's the ideal, but we don't live in an ideal world obviously. So if you have to mix in a double run, Hey, that's okay. Just be smart. Recognize that you need to emphasize recovery even more. And you definitely want to make sure that that second run, and maybe even the the run before it and the run after it are a little, are are definitely easy because you're not getting as much recovery in between runs. So it's, it's, you're, you're adding variables to the equation that, you know, can be great, but boy, they can come crashing down if you're not careful. So be careful with adding doubles to the mix. And if you have other questions about it as we go, certainly let me know. Next question comes from Dan. Uh, getting close to the end, but we still got, I don't know, six, eight questions left to go. Definitely going to be well over an hour for this one, maybe bordering into hour and a half territory. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But uh, next question from Dan says, I've heard you talk about how it isn't a bad idea to run once in a while without your watch. What if you are heart rate training? Is it still a good idea to run without your watch? If so, how often might you suggest doing that if you are dialed in on heart rate training? I'd love to have take a break from all the data and just run some time, but I also am trying hard to focus on watching my heart rate and making sure it doesn't go too high 
while I run. So great question, Dan, and way to kind of call me out for some some uh, conflicting advice. I don't know if this is contradictory advice, but certainly conflicting advice. Because yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much all in on the idea that your easy runs need to be kept easy. And the best way to make sure that they're kept easy is to have your heart rate strap on, right? Have your, your monitor on, making sure you're keeping an eye on things, having those alerts set so that if you start getting too high uh, of the heart rate, you're working too, your body's working too hard, it's going to go off. You know, and, and going back to Karen's question right now, you might not think you're running that hard, but because of all the extra stress in life right now, your heart rate numbers are higher than, than they would regularly be. So is it, but at the same time, like you said, like you so eloquently pointed out, I don't think it's a bad idea to run naked once in a while, you know, meaning naked, leaving your, your, all your technology at home. If you want to run naked, naked, Hey, that's on you. <laughs> you do you boo. And you might be able to get away with it right now because of social distancing, not as many people outside. Maybe you can get away with it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, as far as, as I'm concerned, running naked, meaning no watch, no phone, just out and run. There's, there's reasons to do that. There's benefits to that. Maybe even right now. Is as, is as good of a time as any because it's just, you can just get the, you can just get the calm. You can just get out and go and not worry about beeps and buzzes and things like that and tracking data and what it all set. Like you can just go. So maybe, maybe there's never been a better time than right now to run naked. Yeah. There's never been a more difficult time to make sure your heart rate stays in check while running than right now. Dichotomy. So, you know, a couple of suggestions that you can keep in mind, do with as you, you wish, Dan. Um, one, I think that if you're, if you're hardcore about heart rate training, if you're, if you're, this is what I want to do and you're still new to it, it's probably good to keep the heart rate monitor on. All right. So that you can keep kind of keep your, your runs from going up above the, the level that you're trying to keep at. If you've been in it for a while and you're, you're pretty good at monitoring how you're feeling. And for the most part, your runs aren't crossing any thresholds. You're not getting any alerts from your watch. Then you're probably good to, to take the watch off as much as you want. Leave it at home. Or you know, tuck it away in your in your pocket so you don't see it, but you still get the the um, the, the distances if you're worried about knowing what your distances are, um, and just going, just running, and not worrying about it. Um, that said, and again, this is where I'm kind of con- con- contradicting myself a little bit. Whether you're new to running or new to heart rate training or not, whether your runs are always going over the, you're always going up to the heart rate limits or not. If we're at a point in your life right now, your point of your running career right now, where worrying too much about the data, worrying too much about the heart rate numbers, it's kind of sapping some fun from it, making it more like a job and less like a release, less like a stress relief and more like just one more thing that you got to keep track of, then take the bloody watch off. You know, we, we want you running now more than ever, but really all the time to be something that, that is fun, that does make you feel better that does help you to relax and be a better person on all, on all fronts. And if, and if tracking your heart rate and being alerted by your, your numbers is taking away from that in any, in any way, definitely better to just run and not worry about all the data, not worry about all the feedback, just run and enjoy it. And if slash when you want to come back to wearing the heart rate stuff and, and keeping, keeping tabs, then come back to it, come back to it. You know, we want running to be fun first and foremost. So if you want to take a break from the data, Dan, take a break from the data, leave the watch at home, go out and just run, go out and just run. And I promise I'm not going to give you any, any hard time for that at all. So, um, I don't know if there's an answer to that question in there somewhere, but that's my answer is, is, you know, it's, it's a good idea if you want to be into heart rate training, but don't be, don't be so locked in that running stops being fun. 
hopefully something in that made a little bit of sense, but thank you for the question, sir. Next question comes from Chris. Uh, it says, what are your thoughts on using running power data like the stride or the Garmin running power app in training? Would the data be useful for comparisons? So, um, you know, it's funny that the way you worded your question, Chris, because what are my thoughts on it? I literally have none because I literally haven't thought about it until I saw your question. Um, I don't, I don't think it's really necessary. Um, I think that like a lot of the data that, that comes out, a lot of the apps that come out, um, measuring this, measuring that there's, there's so much data going on that it just kind of becomes analysis paralysis. Uh, it doesn't really help us anything. It doesn't really tell us anything that's, that's useful. And, uh, not that I've looked into stride or Garmin running power in, in any type of depth, but I feel like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, focusing on running power data is just extraneous, non-useful data for the, for most of us, for most of us. But here's, here's the, the, the rub, or here's the, the thing. If you're a data person, you like collecting data, short talking to you here. Um, nothing wrong with getting it. Nothing wrong with, with collecting that data may, may pose some useful bit of information down the road. Most of us, I don't think it matters because here's the thing. If you're running easy, most of the time, if you're taking my advice, whether you're hardcore heart rate training, 80, 20, whatever, if you're running easy, most of the time, like running easy, kind of by definition, you're not generating nearly as much power as you are when you're hammering, right? So when you're, when you're doing a hard workout, when you're doing a tempo run, when you're running a race, yeah, you're going to be generating a pretty good amount of power. When you're just running easy, doing a long, slow distance, easy run, long run, recovery run, you're not going to be generating much power. I don't need a fancy app to tell me that it's just, just the way it works, right? It's biomechanics 101. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know when you would really use the data that, that much, you know, I guess, would you compare from one workout to the, you know, I did, I did, uh, you know, one minute repeats four weeks ago and I'm doing that workout again. I guess you could compare the amount of power you generated in those two workouts to see if, you know, if you pushed yourself well, or if you improved, but I mean, you could also just look at the times, look at the splits. Oh, I ran, I ran last week's average, average time for the, the one minute hard was, or average pace was, was, you know, three tenths of a mile slower. So I must not have run it as hard, or maybe I'm more fit now. I don't know. I mean, like, like I just feel like it's just more data that doesn't do anything for us. It's just one more thing to worry about. So kind of, you know, going back to Dan's question, like worrying too much about heart rate. Now we're worried too much about the bloody power. If you like data, do it, get it, go for it. But I don't, I don't foresee for most of us too many real valuable uses for it. So if, if you don't care about having that much more data, eh, I would, uh, I would pass. And I have, like, I, I have no desire right now to get a stride or a power app or anything like that down the road. Who knows? But right now, eh, I, I'm just, I know when I'm pushing the power, that's all I'm, I'm really worried about. Uh, but thank you for the question, Chris. Hope that, that that is helpful or useful or gives you something to chew on a little bit. If you've been thinking about getting one of those apps, um, you know, I mean, go for it if you want to, but I don't, I don't see much real, real world use for it for most of us. Uh, next question comes from Glenn says, what are your thoughts on Romwad range of motion work out of the day? Uh, I've been thinking about yoga and this gives me a daily range of motion workout. So, uh, Glenn, I, I, um, I don't really speak CrossFit and I'm assuming that this looks like it's CrossFit, the R-O-M-W-O-D, the Ramwad. My thoughts on it? I think that most of us would benefit from a bit more stretching, a bit more range of motion work, a bit more foam rolling, a bit more soft tissue work. So if if this is what it takes for you to get on the foam roller a bit more, get on the yoga bat, mat a bit more to work your your ankles and your knees and your hips and even other parts of your shoulders, your your torso, uh, 
you know, if, if this is going to help you work through some different ranges of motion and improve and or maintain range of motion that you already have, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. So, you know, whether this is, you know, I don't think it's across the board that everybody needs to, to focus on the ROM wads and not on whatever else. But if you want to get more into it and this is going to help you do it, either by giving you some extra accountability or giving you some you know, variety of, of stretches, poses, things of that nature to do, rock on, brother. Rock on, brother. If this, if this works for you, great. Because I think that most of us would benefit from a little bit more stretching, uh, a little bit more foam rolling, like I said, a little bit more joint uh, range of motion work. And I'm certainly one. I certainly would benefit from more of it. I don't know that Ramwad is for me, but I don't know that it's not. I, maybe I should look into it. Maybe I should give it a try, see what happens. So if it helps you, if it helps you actually do it, go with it, Glenn. Go with it, brother. Uh, next question comes from Eska. Says, uh, I live in South Texas and the heat and humidity can be crazy at times. Tell me about it. We are, I'm in Florida. You're in Texas. Uh, you know, I know it's not always exactly the same, but boy, summertime, not a whole lot of fun for either of us. That is for sure. So getting back to the question, uh, it's already getting hard to find a time uh, that it isn't hot and it's only going to get worse in the upcoming months. How do I factor in the heat and humidity's effect on my heart rate training or on my heart rate into my heart rate training? Do I just stick to my heart rate and try to ignore the two to three minute per mile drop in pace? Or do I keep a more quote unquote normal pace and somewhat ignore the heart rate? So, uh, Eska, you're not going to like this answer, but it's, it's the truthful answer. So maybe I guess you'll, hopefully you'll at least appreciate me being truthful, even if it's the answer that you probably don't want to hear. And that is if you're, if you're focused on heart rate training, if you're, if you're buying in hook, line and sinker, like I have, when it comes to heart rate training, then when it gets hot, when it gets humid, when it's that environmental stress on your body, kind of going again, going back all these questions, lots of questions tied in today. Going back to Karen's question about, you know, the, the stress of coronavirus, stress of heat and humidity. Guess what? That's stress. And again, your body to your body, stress is stress is stress. So the whole goal of heart rate training is to make sure that we're training below a certain stressful limit, stressful level measured by your heart rate. And so if you're, if you're living and training in an area where it's hot and humid, you got to slow down. You got to slow down. If you just go, oh, well, whatever, I'm going to keep my normal pace and my heart rate's going to be 10, 15, 20 beats higher than normal because of the heat. Well, guess what? You're not heart rate training anymore. You're not heart rate training anymore. You're getting into that kind of gray area, get into that, that, that junk mile area where no longer is your run easy enough to be easy, but it's really not hard enough. You're not pushing hard enough to get the physiological benefits of, of running hard. You're just kind of getting junk miles in. So, uh, if, if heart rate training is your thing, if you, if you believe it like I do, uh, as it keeps getting hotter and hotter here in, in central Florida, I'll keep backing off the pace, you know? So then it gets to, Again, can you, can you run earlier in the morning? Can you try to run before you have any caffeine? Uh, can you try to do some things to, to minimize the amount of stress that you're dealing with anyway? So that only thing you're worried about is running in heat and not all the other things going on to keep your heart rate down a little bit more. So you're able to, tr- to, to run a little bit closer to your normal pace, but it's going to, it's going to be impacted. We're going to, we're all going to be running slower in the, in the, uh, summer months than we are in the winter months, no matter where you live, if you're following heart rate training guidelines following a heart rate training plan that keeps your heart rate below a certain level, you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to slow down. And, uh, yeah, you just kind of have to suck it up. You have to kind of ignore or, uh, be cool. You have to put your ego in check with the fact that it's going to be slower. And if you, you please, you know, if, if you're, if you want to make sure I'm practicing what I, what I preach, please keep following, uh, you know, my, my daily Instagram posts, my, my story where I put the pace of my run every day. Now it may not look like the pace of yours, but keep in mind, I've been doing this heart rate training thing for two and a half years now, almost. You know, started in, I guess, yeah, 
Yeah, it's been it's been just over two years or two and a half years. By the time we get to the summer, it'll be two and a half years. So my discrepancy from cold weather training to hot weather training and my heart rate and pace may not be as much as it is for you, but if you stick with it, keep building that aerobic fitness, keep being disciplined, that gap will continue to shrink for you too, to where, you know, maybe next summer you'll get to a point where it's, it's impacting your pace by, you know, 20, 30 seconds, as opposed to two to three minutes. Um, because that's, that's kind of the, the difference that I've noticed over the last couple of years. So, uh, stick with it if that's what you're doing, Eska, because it does pay off but it's, it sucks in the summertime. It's a hit to the ego. No question about it. A uh, handful of questions left. Five questions left. Next one comes from Brooke. If you were writing a nutrition plan during regular training season and it, you know, then also during marathon training season, how would it look? Would it, would it, what would it look like on average? I know there's a lot of variables, but, but what is kind of your uh, take on nutrition? So um, here's another one, Brooke. Here's another question. Kind of like the last one. You're not going to like my answer, but uh, I don't really change much when I'm not training versus when I'm training. And you're right though. There is a lot of variables that, that need to be taken into effect. Um, and, and maybe the biggest one is, you know, how much different does regular training look like versus marathon training? So if you're someone who really kind of backs things off when you're not training for a race, um, you know, you may have to make some pretty substantial types of changes when you get into like peak marathon training and you're, and you're just logging more miles. You need more, you need more calories to, to stay, you know, to, to stay healthy, to fuel your body. Um, for me, it doesn't look that much different. You know, like, like right now, um, honestly, you know, in the month of March is going to be probably my, my highest volume month ever. And I don't have any races on the horizon, you know? So like I'm eating pretty much like I normally read, eat during marathon training, right? Like nothing's, nothing's really changed. Uh, trying to just make sure I'm eating enough calories. Um, I don't worry about trying to count macros. I don't worry about trying to make sure I'm getting enough protein. How much is too much? What is, what is the right amount of fat? What is the right amount of carbs? All that to say you all know, if you've been listening long enough that I'm, I'm on the low carb, uh, train, definitely believe in it. Uh, so I eat, I eat very few. I mean, I don't eat like keto levels of carbs, but I eat very few carbs. Um, still more than probably most keto folks. Cause I eat some sweet potatoes. I eat some fruit, things like that. Um, but you know, a little bit of dark chocolate here and there, but I don't eat a lot of processed carbs. Uh, I don't eat a lot of processed foods in general. And maybe that's ultimately, if I was writing a nutrition plan, that's what I would encourage you to do. Not worry too much about all the details, not worry too much about all the carbs and the ratios and the this and the that. Some people that works for them, for me, it doesn't. I like to keep it simple. Stick with real food. Stick with unprocessed food as much as possible. You know, kind of that, that old adage of if you're, when you're at the grocery store, just take the a lap around the outside where all the fresh stuff is, the fresh meats, the fresh dairy, uh, you know, the, the non-processed meats, the non-processed dairy, the, the fresh fruits and vegetables, non-processed stuff there as well. Um, buy, you know, fill most of your cart with that stuff. Very few things from the, the, the more processed parts of the grocery store, the, the, the cans and the boxes and the, the mixes and the things like that. Um, and you're gonna be pretty good. You'll be pretty good. Try to eat a variety of things. Try not to get locked into just one type of, you know, one, you know, chicken breast and broccoli every single day. Like, no, have a little bit of variety again, whatever fits your dietary preferences. If you're, if you're low fat, high, low carb, vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, paleo, whatever, whatever your, your kind of theme is for how you eat. You can stick to those guidelines, but mix up your, your plate a little bit, mix up the types of foods you're eating that fall within, you know, the, the parameters that you have set. Um, variety is a good thing when it comes to our diet. I believe, uh, you know, lots of different vegetables, uh, a variety of vegetables, lot in quantity of vegetables and, and fruits, I think are good. Again, no matter what type of, unless you're really strictly like carnivorous diet, which I don't know that I feel like that's the best, but that's an argument for another day. Um, but just making sure we're getting different things in. Um, and again, I don't really see too much of a reason to, to mix it up 
training versus non-training or, you know, training versus specific training for a marathon. Um, because good, good, just like good training is good training. Good diets are good diets. Good nutrition planning is good nutrition planning. And so, you know, stick to, stick to what works, stick to what works for your body, stick to what works for your taste buds, but you know, just kind of keep, keep things as simple as possible. And I feel like that's the, the best way to go. So you know, if you need to add a few more calories in because you're training now, or you're gearing up for a big race, you know, mix in quality, quality versus, uh, non-quality. So maybe it's more, uh, nuts. Maybe it's more seeds. Maybe it's more avocado, something that's, that's pretty nutrient dense, but still a real food as opposed to cakes and cookies and ice cream. You can have those things once I'm mean, not saying you can't have those, but if you got to add calories, try to add good calories to the mix as opposed to kind of processed, less quality type of things. And for the most part, that's going to help us be healthier, fitter, uh, and, and better just all around, I think in, in most cases. And I think that most people would agree with that. Right. So, um, you know, you can still treat yourself. You can still have a, a splurge once in a while, nothing wrong with that, but you know, try not to make it. I don't think it makes sense to make it too much different from one part of the training cycle to another. Good food is good food. Eat good food. Eat good food. Um, I know that doesn't answer the question, Brooke, but hopefully that answers the question, Brooke. If that makes any sense at all. Uh, next question. Got one, two. Actually, now we got five more. Now we got four more. Now we got four more questions. The countdown is on and uh, the voice is running out, but we're going to get through it. No question about that. Uh, next question from Sean. He says, I love to run. My job is fairly demanding physically. I want to run during the week, but lately have been restricted to just one day on the weekend. After sweating all day, it's hard to find the motivation to get right back at it when I get home. Any mental tricks you could think of that could help keep me motivated, uh, keep the motivation going after I drive home from work. So Sean, this is, this is a tough one and, and a place that I found myself before. And, and, um, again, maybe this is the, the trifecta of questions in a row where you might not like the answer, but it's probably the best answer. Um, I get having a physically demanding job. I get having, you know, at the end of the day, the stresses of the day, getting home, you just kind of maybe want to veg, you want to sit down, you want to relax a little bit, have dinner, things like that. And so to try to get right back out the door is tough, is tough. So the, I think the best option, if it's available to make sure that you're getting a a couple runs in during the week, in addition to your weekend long run is to try to mix it in before work. Now I know that that, that can be difficult depending on schedules and life. And and especially right now with things being up in the air, that might be difficult, but I think that without a doubt, that's the best way to make it happen. Get it done first. Then you go to work and now you don't have to worry about it when you get home. Now, if if running after work is really the only time that's going to work, a couple of suggestions to try to help make it more likely that you'll get those runs in as opposed to it really being a struggle for when you get home. And the best option I can give you on that front is to run before you get home. I don't know what you you do work-wise. I don't know what options you have available, but if you can change into your running clothes at the end of your work day and run, you know, run around where you work. Maybe there's a park there. Maybe there's just a quiet neighborhood, whatever. You can get your run in before you even get in the car to come home. That's the best way to make it happen. Right, because you're just you're just kind of extending, almost extending the workday. Right, you finish work, change clothes, go for your run. Then you get in the car, come home. If that doesn't work, maybe there's a trailhead. Maybe there's some place that you, again, a quiet neighborhood, a good park, whatever, some place that you can stop at on your way home. So you get you get changed at work, get in the car, drive to you know wherever the trail is or the the park, whatever. You get out of the car, get your run in, get back in the car, drive home. That's the next best option, because let's not kid ourselves. Once we get home. You got to come in the house to change clothes. Now you've got, you know, whatever's going on in the house. You've got kids, dog, spouse, uh, just whatever. All these things that are coming at you. You got the couch that's beckoning. I'll just sit down for a minute and have a, a, a couple sips of water. Yeah, we all know how that plays out. 
You know how that plays out, Sean. That's you run out of motivation to get back out and get after it, right? So trying to get those miles in either before work is probably, in my opinion, the ideal. If that doesn't work, can you get them in before you get home? Worst case scenario, quote unquote, worst case scenario, you still change at work, get your running gear on, you drive home, put the car in park, step out of the car, go for your run. Don't even come inside. Don't even come inside. Unless it's an absolute bathroom emergency, don't even come inside. Park the car, step out, go. Get your two or three miles in, come back, get your stuff out of the car, go inside, relax. Okay. So those are, those are three suggestions for running after work. I still think the best option, if it fits in your life, which it may not, but if it does try to get it done before work, like that's for me, hands down, that's the best situation. If I, if I skip a run in the morning, I'll just make it up in the afternoon. I mean, it's less than 50, 50 that I'm gonna get it done. If I, if I get something done in the morning, Hey, at least I got something done. So do your best. But those are some suggestions for after the run or after the work day that will hopefully work for you. But thank you for the question, Sean. Next question comes from Phil says, uh, my 14 year old daughter and I ran Richmond, ran the Richmond half marathon last fall. And she was doing great until about a week before. I'm sorry, but it says I ran, but I think this should be, we were training for the Richmond half marathon last fall. And she was doing great until about a week before the race. Uh, when her knees started bothering her, she decided to run anyway but only made it to about mile nine before she literally couldn't put any weight on it anymore. The doctor says it was a partial tear of her MCL. It healed well without surgery, but she wants to know how to keep it from happening again. How can she strengthen it so that she can run another half this year? So a couple of, of, of kind of questions, I guess that I have Phil that, that make it hard to give a, a specific answer. But, um, I wonder what else she does besides running the half marathon, because it, it seems really unlikely from, from my years in, in the athletic training room, my room, my years studying kinesiology and physiology and things like that, that running training for a distance race is going to put much stress on the MCL and cause it to have a partial tear. The possible exception to that is something that maybe you don't want to hear as a dad, but is it's fact, you know, Body's shifting, body's changing during those puberty years. If her hips are widening out a little bit, that can change the uh, the Q angle a little bit, which is the angle from the, the femur uh, into the hip socket. So it could be a little bit more kind of almost lead to like a knock knees type of situation, which could be temporary, could be, could be longer term. But that when you're then running, even running in a straight line, puts extra stress on the, the structures on the inside part of the knee, which is the MCL, which again, hormones, things changing could have caused some type of issue with, with the MCL partial tear strain strength, uh, you know, sprain that type of thing. Maybe there was some underlying issue that was there from years ago playing, you know, youth soccer or something like that. Um, and again, the shifting in the hips, increased mileage, things like that caused it to flare back up. And so she couldn't, uh, finish, finish the race. So, um, all that to say, I'm trying to figure out why it was an MCL partial tear, um, because there's really not anything from a strengthening perspective that's going to do much for that. Now I say that, and then I say this working on balance, working on stability, things like that can help to just kind of make your body more stable, which puts less wear and tear on the, the ligaments that are surrounding joints. So that could help a little bit. Um, but as far as like strength training, you know, if, if, this, if this is something she wants to do, she really wants to run this half marathon. Um, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing outside of the ordinary realm of things that we would do, right. Just daily life. Um, you know, maybe if, as far as strength training goes, a little bit of squats, a little bit of lunges, those are fine for, for, you know, somebody 14, 15 years old. Um, nothing wrong there, but don't need to do a bunch of heavy weights. Just do it with body weight. Be fine. 
um, you know, and just living life. But again, I wonder if there's something else going on. Is she, does she play soccer? Does she play basketball, volleyball, cheerleading, any of those other types of things, um, which maybe is what could have caused the injury, did cause the injury, but then the running kind of exacerbated it. But if she's doing those other types of things, her strength is probably fine. Her strength is probably fine. Um, it's just, it just happened to flare up. And so just something to keep an eye on. Um, but in general, running straight ahead shouldn't put a lot of stress and strain on your MCL. All right. But again, especially in, in girls that are changing into women, there's, there's physical changes that are happening that it could have just been the timing was absolutely perfect or absolutely, you know, the opposite of perfect as the case might be. And, you know, this year being a year older, she may not have any problems at all, may not have any problems at all, but definitely, you know, just, you know, just like anybody. And, and I'm not one that thinks that, you know, 14, 15 years old is too young to run a half marathon or a marathon, things like that. Like it all just comes down to training, train up intelligently, build up gradually. Um, and hopefully you and her will be able to, uh, to cross that finish line together this year, which would be pretty awesome. And not going to lie something that I, uh, think about once in a while with, with my own daughter, who's still a, a few years from doing a, a half marathon. She's five, but, uh, would love, would love to be able to do that with her at some point down the road, but it all just comes down to training intelligently. Again, that's for anybody, whether you're 12, 16, 40, train up intelligently, train up slowly, gradually, let your body adjust as we go. And then hopefully you can avoid some of those things, but you know, a little bit of strength training, but for, for a, if she's an active teenager, she's probably getting enough strength training anyway, but a couple of squats, lunges, things like that. Good to go. But, uh, hopefully that helps fill in. And again, hopefully, uh, good health for her moving forward in her running career. Uh, two questions left. One from Sean again. Uh, what advice would you give to prevent the dreaded 11th mile? That's what we call the mid run stomach issues with the old poop emoji at the end of it. Um, when it comes to GI issues, uh, there's a lot of variables at play, obviously. Um, so it's hard to give any, like, I mean, story of my life, right? It's hard. I struggle with giving any across the board, universal one size fits all advice because let's not kid ourselves. That advice doesn't exist in any front, whether it's training, diet, whatever, there is no such thing as one size fits all. But, um, you know, to, so to try to answer the question somewhat usefully, I think that the biggest thing you do is, is just kind of keep track of what's going on, of what you're taking in, what, what fuel you're, you're giving yourself, what you're eating, um, in the, the day before and the day of your run. Now, again, depend, are you running in the morning? Are you running in the afternoon? Uh, do you have the 11th mile issues every single run, whether it's a, a three miler or a, a 10 miler? Does it only happen at the end of a longer run? Does it only happen sporadically once, once every few weeks, once every few months, lots of variables to consider. If it's happening on a regular basis, that's when you really, I, I feel like would really want to keep track of things you're eating and try to see if you can't identify, you know, when I eat, um, X before a run. I have stomach issues. When I don't eat it, I don't have issues. Now, it may not mean that that's that one thing is the problem, but then you start to kind of see a, a pattern maybe start to emerge, start to see, uh, you know, if, if I eat too much pasta, I really have a problem. But if I eat more veggies, I don't. Maybe vice versa. If I eat too many veggies, too much starch and fiber, that's when I have an issue. I have a little more of a bland uh, meal the night before my run, maybe just kind of some rice and some some simple veggies, no issues, you know, whatever. You start to, to keep track of things, you start to notice it. If it's really just sporadic once in a while, then Hey, it's probably, it's probably still something you ate, but it's probably not something that you eat on a regular enough basis that it causes you problems with every single run. So you can just kind of go, all right, well, I know that when I eat my normal things, um, the night before a long run, I don't very often tend to have issues. So, you know, just kind of that day before your long run, you don't kind of color outside the lines. You eat things that, you know, work well, that sits well on your stomach that doesn't give you problems the next morning. And don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So, um, it's, it really just kind of comes down, I think, to paying attention 
and kind of recognizing that maybe there's some things that you really enjoy eating, but if you eat them 12 hours before you go for your run, you don't have as much of a good run. So, you know, stick to some of those things for the day after your run or the day before uh, an off day so that, you know, you can be around the bathroom if slash when it, it reacts to you. Maybe it doesn't react to you unless you're out pushing yourself on a run. So again, you note that type of thing, and then you make sure you're not eating those foods that can be a little bit more explosive, if you will, the day before a run. And then you don't have those issues, but it all just comes, it kind of comes down to paying attention uh, to what you're eating, not just the morning of, or not just right before, but even the day before, because, you know, spoiler alert, as much as sometimes we think that, oh, I ate this and immediately I'm, I'm kind of feeling, feeling the queeze that happens on occasion. But a lot of times it's what you ate 12, 16 hours ago, because that's how long it takes, it takes food, like 20 hours to get through from mouth to, uh, to, to out the other end, if you will. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's what you ate yesterday for lunch that caused you problems this morning for your run, but it doesn't, you don't put those dots together all the time until, it, unless you're paying attention, unless you're really thinking about it. So that's, that's the name of the game. But my advice, think about what you're eating, pay attention, start connecting those dots and seeing if you can't find a pattern that emerges. Whew, one question left and it's a good one. It's a good one. Jackie asks in the spirit of Easter, I think peep marshmallows are equally as bad as Cadbury eggs. They're invading every other holiday as well. What are your thoughts on peeps? Jackie, we are simpatico on this one. Cadbury eggs, gross. Peeps, gross. Both of them, an abomination to candy, should be banished from Easter and every other holiday from here until eternity. Give me a Reese's chocolate covered egg though. Yes, it's got peanut butter in it. I'll still eat one of those. Still eat one of those. But a Cadbury egg, a peep, I have zero use for either of them. I want them not in my Easter basket. And that, my friends, is uh, an almost hour and a half listener Q&A. Hope it was useful. Hope you learned a few things. Uh, if, if you did, if you got a question in, thank you for contributing to this month's uh, Q&A. Uh, again, hope my, my, my ramblings, the words that fell out of my mouth were somehow helpful to you as you move forward. Um, if they weren't, then give me another question. Give me another chance and we'll try to make it better next month. Uh, once again, disruns.com slash Facebook is the link to come in and join the Facebook group. Love to have you. Always love adding more people to the, to the crew, uh, and which gives us more questions to to answer each and every month, make these Q and a episodes, which I feel like the feedback I get, these are some of the most popular episodes. So I'm glad to do them. Uh, always look forward to them. Even though, even though I know it's going to do a number on my voice after yammering on for an hour and a half. Uh, and who knows, maybe we'll start even getting longer. We're yammering on for an hour or for a couple hours to get some of these in who knows, but, uh, get your, get yourself into the Facebook group, disruns.com slash Facebook, or just search for the disruns tribe. The next time you're on Facebook, and uh, come on and join the party. So what did you enjoy most about this this episode? What was your takeaway? Was there something I said that, that kind of rattled around in your head? Let me know. At Dizruns on Twitter. At Dizruns on Instagram. You can also find me. Dizruns at gmail.com. Or I guess you can send me stuff. Because that's my email address. Dizruns at gmail.com. And of course, you can come over to the show notes for today. We got memes and gifs with most of the questions. As well as you know, kind of some, some short answers. Some links where it's appropriate as well. Uh, Dizruns.com. Slash, what did I say? 825, I think, for today. Let me, let me double check that. Uh, yes, disruns.com slash 825 is a link that'll take you back to the show notes today. Um, and, and while you're there, you can slide on down to the comment box at the bottom of the page and, uh, let me know your feedbacks, thoughts, takeaways, best answers, silliest metaphors, whatever it was from today, you can let me know there as well. So with that, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap this one up, pull this ship into the old proverbial Harbor. I mean, we've been doing metaphors all day. Might as well keep it going. Right. But uh, until next time, y'all, please do well. Take good care. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. And until next time, take care, guys.